this presentation is about palliative care for FSP and outreach providers. I'm Dax Savoli. I'm a fellow in geriatric psychiatry here at UCLA. I also work at the Greater Los Angeles VA healthcare system. Um, I've done some work with the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health in FSP teams, um, as well as the Genesis program for older adults. And this presentation is done in conjunction with the UCLA DMH Public Mental Health Partnership. And I appreciate the invitation to come and talk. Um, palliative care has become one of my kind of uh, pet interests over the last couple of years. And hopefully after this presentation, you'll see why um, I think it's particularly applicable to the, the types of patients that FSP teams and outreach teams see um, and how it can be particularly valuable for those, those patients. Just checking chat one second. Okay, perfect. All right, so I don't have any uh, conflicts of interest. I don't have any disclosures. Um, now my viewpoints in this presentation are all mine. They don't reflect the viewpoints of any of the institutions I mentioned previously. So starting out the presentation, we'll talk a little bit about definitions, um, a little bit about the epidemiology and prevalence of some of these conditions we'll talk about today and some of the impact. Y'all being FSP and outreach providers, I doubt you need much refreshing on this, but we'll go through it nonetheless just to set the stage for what we'll talk about. So for severe and persistent mental illness, the types of people that come to the, come to the attention of FSP teams most often, um, the NIMH, the National Institutes of Mental Health, defined severe and persistent mental illness based on three different dimensions. That's diagnosis, disability, and duration. You can all start to probably envision what these are gonna look like as we go through them. So diagnosis. Uh, psychiatric illness being some type of major affective diagnosis, things like severe recurrent major depression, uh, bipolar disorder, a non-organic psychotic disorder, something like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, or really any psychiatric condition that leads to severe chronic disability, severe personality disorder, an eating disorder, um, severe OCD, really anything that we would see as mental health practitioners could fall under this, this spectrum pretty easily as long as it's persistent and severe. Thinking of things like disability, I'm sure you all can envision, you know, patients that you've seen or patients that you do see who fall under this rubric of not being able to um, maintain employment or they're only able to maintain employment in a sheltered supportive setting. They have markedly limited work skills and their work history is fairly sparse and limited. Um, they require significant financial assistance to maintain themselves out of the hospital or out of supportive setting. And then they often need help getting assistance. Uh, they have difficulty establishing and keeping personal support systems. They need help with basic life skills as far as things like hygiene, money management, food preparation, transportation to and from appointments and jobs. And they may exhibit inappropriate social behavior that results in them getting brought, being brought to the attention of mental health care services or unfortunately judicial, judicial system as we see often in Los Angeles County. And then the last part of this rubric is duration. So this really falls under people who have undergone psychiatric treatment more intensive than outpatient care more than once in a lifetime. And it seems like this definition, everyone kind of gets one, you know, one crisis response, one inpatient hospitalization, one trip through a partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient services. But if you're routinely interfacing with inpatient hospitals, you know, crisis response services through the county or other, other systems, um, needing to be in alternative home settings, so as residential treatment programs, being in the jail mental health system, um, or you're experiencing a continuous episode um, that's requiring supportive residential treatment, 
for a long enough time to significantly disrupt your normal living situation. This all falls under the rubric of severe and persistent mental illness. I'm sure you all can imagine your own patients that have um, severe and persistent mental illness and see how they fit on this spectrum. So how prevalent is this? Um, two years ago, the NIMH estimated that about 13 million adults in the US um, were living with severe and persistent mental illness, and that's about 5% of all adults in the country. If you think about the prevalence of the prevalence of this, it's higher among females than males. It's about two times as, as prevalent. Young adults have the highest prevalence being around 9% compared with middle-aged adults being around 7% and then older adults, 15 and older, around 3%. As far as the kind of racial demographics of severe and persistent mental illness, it's highest among adults reporting two or more races at almost 10%, followed by American Indian, American Native individuals around 7% and then lowest among Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander population in the United States being about 2.5%. So why is this important to talk about? You all can, I'm sure you can imagine the toll that this takes on patients and their families and those around them. And more pertinent to the talk that the, the, the discussion we're having today is that this impacts people's mortality, impacts their, their um, duration of life expectancy. About 10 years on average, people with mental illness have a significantly higher mortality rate, losing about 10 years of life on average. Some of the studies that I looked up shows that they estimate about 15 to 20 years of potential life loss, especially in the severe mental illness category. And there's about, about almost 15% of worldwide deaths per year are directly attributable to mental illness. Uh, this is a chart showing kind of the relative risk ratios of the different categories of mental illness based on how much more likely they are to have premature mortality as opposed to the general population. So you can see this is a fairly major impact. I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir, but just setting the stage of why our talk today is kind of important. So why do these people have excess mortality? Most of this is attributable to things like chronic illness, things like cancer, heart disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema, and even things like dementia. There's a lot that play into this. Uh, the, the excess mortality from chronic disease there's a lot of factors that contribute to this. Substance use is very prevalent in this population. It has a lot of medical, um, uh, a lot of secondary medical effects. They're not as easily able to engage with preventative health care. They have poor access to medical care. And then even what I'm doing as a psychiatrist, prescribing medications for a lot of these, these severe mental illnesses, this can induce medical conditions that will lead to chronic illness and excess mortality. So it's something we all have to be particularly aware of. Shifting gears a little bit to talk more about homelessness, something that often goes part and parcel with severe mental illness. Um, a homeless person is defined as someone who lacks a fixed, regular and adequate nighttime residence or lives in another shelter that's not designed for long-term human habitation. Someone who is imminent risk for housing loss within the next two weeks. I know even when I was working with the FSP program in the San Fernando Valley, my patients weren't always on the street or in a shelter, but they were often couch surfing or moving between different residences very quickly. And if they lost that, they would very easily end up on the street. And then the last category is people fleeing from domestic violence situations without resources to gain permanent stable housing. Estimates range from anywhere from around two to three and a half million people in the US experience homelessness in a year. There's a high burden of co-occurring medical illness, psychiatric illnesses we all know, and substance use disorders amongst the homeless population. And then unfortunately, there's a demographic trend towards homeless people in this country being older. 
Um, it's mirroring this nationwide population shift we'll talk about. Um, you may or may not have heard of the term silver tsunami, but we're seeing an explosion in the 50 and plus population. And we're seeing that reflected in our homeless population as well, unfortunately. Homelessness is independently by itself associated with a higher level of mortality. The average age of death among chronically homeless individuals is between 42 and 52. Um, that's you know much lower than the kind of uh, developed country average of 75 to 80. Um, if you combine this with a mental health condition or substance use disorder, homelessness, that this, this risk of in, uh, increased mortality balloons um, from natural things like we've already talked about, chronic illness, as well as unnatural causes, things like suicide, violence, these people might be at risk of experiencing. These people are at risk for premature aging. As a geriatric psychiatrist, this is something I think about often. These geriatric frailty conditions or syndromes developing up to 20 years early. So you may be seeing relatively, you know, quote unquote, young patients developing things like cognitive impairment, severe functional impairment, falls, and all of the issues that come with falls much earlier than what you would expect to see in someone who's relatively young. Again, we've already talked about what some of the contributors to excess mortality in this population might be. It's good to refresh our minds on this as well. So as I alluded to a little bit earlier, this idea of the silver tsunami, more people, more Americans are living longer and entering older age than ever before. In eight short years, when the youngest baby boomers turn 65, about 20% of our population is going to be in 60 is going to be in the 65 or older age bracket. That's a 14% increase from 2012. And it's not likely that this trend is going to slow down anytime soon. And what we're seeing is that today's 65 year olds can expect to live on average another almost 20 years, which is an increase in about six years from 65 year olds, you know, 70 years ago. With this, we're not necessarily seeing an increase in quality of life. We're, in seeing, we're seeing an increase in quantity of life but we're not necessarily seeing an increase in quality of life. And especially amongst people who have severe mental illness, who are experiencing homelessness either chronically or sporadically, we have to keep in mind, how can we support people's quality of life um, as we're seeing this, age, this aging boom? So what is, we've talked a little bit about the impact on the patients, on society in general, but what about us, the healthcare providers that are seeing these people day in and day out? Um, you know, I'm sure that everyone in this talk has probably experienced some of this to some, to, to some extent in their, their professional work. Um, we can be the victims of violence. Um, we can begin to feel that we're depersonalizing our patients. We're not viewing them as people, um, you know, as opposed to providing person-centered care. We may feel a role conflict. There's an overload in a lot of these roles, especially dealing with severely ill um, patients. We, we feel that we're not adequately trained or equipped to deal with all the things we're being asked to deal with or we may be seeing ourselves going above and beyond, you know, out of the goodness of our own hearts, but also something that we're not necessarily asked or equipped to do. We may not have the right equipment to provide some of this care. We may not have the right personnel to provide some of this care. Um, there may be pretty significant conflict with family members, caregivers, other individuals in the community. Um, there's a high workload. I'm sure you all have are, you know, are seeing more patients than you uh, may otherwise feel reasonably able to provide care for. Um, there's a lot of administrative and bureaucratic issues, you know, working in the county, the federal and the UCLA system. I can say this, this, this kind of goes, this bridges all of those uh, different institutions and we're dealing with administrative hurdles that, that oftentimes get in the way of providing the best care that we can provide for patients. And then something that's talked a little bit less about, but there's this necessary suppression of emotional response to provide care for these people, this emotional disconnect. 
and trying to get back in touch with why we all got into this field to begin with, providing a high level of care for these patients who are suffering. And certainly as we think about the palliative care aspect of this, you know, severe illness, terminal illness, we all get to know these patients working with them for months or years at a time. There's gonna be grief that takes its own toll on the providers as well. Something that we talk about, you know, thinking the same in the same, uh, the same vein as the idea of all of these factors that might be leading to, to burnout or compassion fatigue. I thought this was a nice schematic um, that, that, that goes through some of these in a, in a uh, more visual way. Um, someone is exposed to suffering, something that we you know, are exposed to every single day, uh, contending with severe mental illness or contending with, with homelessness. Um, we're concerned for these people. We have our own natural empathic ability or we wouldn't be in this field. So we have an empathic response. We try to provide the best care that we can for these people. But as we talked about, there's this emotion role disconnect. We have to detach from this a little bit or else we get overwhelmed. But we also have a sense of satisfaction, which is positive, providing care for these people who otherwise wouldn't be able to receive it. Um, there's gonna be stress that's, that's residual to this. And the longer that we're in this field with the prolonged exposure to this perceived suffering, traumatic memories, grief, loss, um, you know, all of the things that add up on this job, other life demands, I'm sure we're all have lives outside of being professionals. This leads to compassion fatigue, feeling burned out, feeling like you're not coming to work to be able to provide the best care possible for these patients and do the best job that we can. So what is a potential antidote to this, or at least something that can, can kind of dial this back? Um, we haven't yet touched on the, the kind of what palliative care is or what palliative medicine is. So we'll jump right into that. Essentially, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services define this. And I think this is a very good definition. It's all encompassing um, as palliative care is patient and family centered care that optimizes the quality of life by anticipating, preventing and treating suffering. Palliative care throughout their continuum of illness involves addressing physical, intellectual, emotional, social, and spiritual needs, and facilitating patient autonomy, access to information, and choice. Now, to me, that sounds kind of like the ideal way to provide care, and it seems like the, patient, the way that everybody should be providing patients care, uh, but we'll explore what some of the barriers might be and how we might be able to make this a more regular part of our practice um, going throughout this, this talk. Some of the primary tenets of palliative care, if you haven't heard of this before, Things like symptom management, making sure we're adequately managing symptoms as well as we can, giving patients and their families a sense of control over their care, implementing care plans that are in line with patients' stated values and preferences. We'll talk about some of the difficulties in doing that in the specific population that we care for here. There's a consistent and sustained communication between the patient and all of those involved in their care. Again, that prevents a particular challenge with some of our patients as their care is often very disjointed and sporadic. Um, we'll talk about psychosocial, spiritual, and practical interventions for patients and their caregivers, coordinating care across sites, and then identifying surrogate decision makers in case the patients lose their ability to make decisions on their own. I just wanted to stop for a second and see if there are any questions in the chat. Nope. Okay. So why is this applicable? I think that over the last 50 years or so, you know, this traditional model of medical care has been very dichotomous, where medicine is essentially split between disease modifying and curative treatment on one side, it's offered initially, and then comfort care is provided only when those measures fail. Uh, as we can imagine, most illnesses in medicine, even things like heart disease, COPD, cancer, they don't lend themselves well to this model. And certainly things like chronic severe mental illness, homelessness, and all of the sequelae that go along with those things don't lend themselves well to this model. 
you know, if we could wave our hands and cure homelessness and experimental illness, we would, but it's not really within anyone's power to do that. So what do we need to do next? Um, we certainly don't want to just offer comfort care for these people. So what are some other ways that we can approach care um, that, that will help our patients have the best quality of life that they can, while also helping the healthcare system not get so run down and burned out? Palliative care concepts, thinking away from things like hospice, which is really only offered in the last six months of terminal illness, whenever curative measures have been essentially skewed. Uh, palliative care concepts can be applied at all stages of the disease. They're not limited to the end of life. And really, you know, they should be offered at all stages of the illness. They should be routinely offered alongside curative disease-modifying treatments for patients with serious illnesses. And then I think one could argue that all care for truly severe and persistent mental illness is palliative. You know, if, again, as we, if we could wave a wand and cure schizophrenia or bipolar disorder tomorrow, we certainly would, but it's not feasible, especially for our sickest patients. So just to kind of set the stage of thinking about what terminal illnesses look like, um, you know, you can all essentially imagine what uh, the illness trajectory of people with cancer, with severe heart and lung disease and dementia looks like, but this kind of puts it on a graph, which I think illustrates it fairly well. For patients with cancer, you know, I'm sure you all have had experience with, you know, patients or family members or even personally with cancer. At the time of diagnosis, there may not be a lot of symptoms. Um, functionality may be very high. And then over a few years or a few months, there's a fairly precipitous decline in quality of life and level of functionality and level of symptoms to the point of death. Um, so usually this is the classic model of palliative care uh, input is that once a patient decides away from the curative or disease modifying treatment, then palliative care input is available as they start to slide down this slope towards, you know, towards, uh, towards death. Other types of illnesses, things like chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease, what we're seeing more in this country, um, there's a slow decline over the course of years with periodic hospital admissions, periodic exacerbation of symptoms, and then death seems kind of sudden after one of these declines. And again, here you could argue that palliative care could really be introduced at any point along this path to make sure that people's quality of life, their goals of care are attended to as well as possible. Um, you may or may not have seen this working with elderly adults, certainly elderly adults with cognitive impairment, the kind of what, what do we call the dwindles and that they have frailty, um, they have dementia that develops over time and then their level of functionality and, and level of symptoms decreases over time to the point of death. It's very variable. Um, and I think if you, if you look at the population of severe and persistent mental illness, patients experiencing homelessness, you could pretty much apply all of these, uh, all of these disease trajectories to this um, at various points in their life and various points of their illness. So, you know, we've kind of painted a picture of what palliative care looks like. To me, it sounds like it would be a very good way to provide care for these people. It certainly seems like they need it. So why isn't this more easily available? Um, it's, you know, the access to care for these people in general is very poor. Um, if you look at, you know, hard data, there's not a lot of data or studies that have looked at this. Um, but those that have, have actually looked at this in kind of a scholarly way show that patients with schizophrenia and a terminal illness are referred for palliative care services half as often as patients without schizophrenia. They're twice as likely to spend their final days in a nursing home, and they receive less pain management overall. Um, you know, having a mental illness, just having a diagnosed mental illness is associated with about a 25% decrease in your chance of having some type of medical advance directive if you're in a nursing home. Um, so these people are not having their, their care 
goals, their goals of care, their preferences elicited and documented in a, a way that can be stored and transported amongst care sites. Uh, terminally ill patients with a severe mental illness experience a decline in their interactions with their mental health care providers at the end of life, potentially exacerbating symptoms and making their care more difficult. And often we see medical symptoms that are misattributed to psychiatric illness in this population. People are thinking that patients are malingering or just trying to get extra services, unfortunately. The causes of this, the causes of these barriers are complex. You know, I don't want to just put this on bias of providers or the healthcare system being unequipped to do this as a whole. Um, you know, oftentimes in hospitals, if you worked in hospital settings, care planning on discharge is often predicated on patients having basic resources um, that patients with severe mental illness and or homelessness, they lack um, things like stable housing, social support, transportation to a follow-up appointment, ability to pay for their medications, or even ability to get to a pharmacy to pick up medications. Um, certainly medical equipment, they may not have a place to store it. Um, a lot of the places that provide uh, high quality palliative care, things like palliative care teams in hospitals, um, even hospice services are ill-equipped to provide this care to patients that are mentally ill or homeless, that don't have social support. They're not able to form trusting alliances with new providers. Non-psychiatric providers, they often feel this is, you know, medical doctors in hospitals that aren't psychiatrists. Uh, they feel inadequately trained to how to talk about uh, medical information to patients with severe and persistent mental illness. Um, they may just want to try and get these patients out as quickly as possible, similarly with patients experiencing homelessness. And then on the flip side of this, mental health care practitioners um, who feel comfortable communicating with, caring for these patients may not have knowledge about palliative care. Um, they may not be able to introduce uh, suggest or really even discuss basic palliative care interventions or what palliative care is. So we're we're seeing kind of a failure on both sides of the both sides of the aisle um, for introducing this this idea of palliative care to our patients. There's certainly a mistrust of the medical system among a lot of these patients. Um, there and there's that again. I've kind of mentioned this lack of transportation. Other reasons that this may be difficult to provide this this level of care for these patients. Um, it may be difficult. To, to get a history from some of these patients. It may be difficult to engage them in the care process. Um, they may present late. They may not take their symptoms to me, you know, what we might go to a hospital for. I've seen patients with severe mental illness show up um, in the latest stages of some type of illness, and they just don't have a lot of insight into the fact that something is wrong. Patients with homelessness, patients experiencing homelessness, may not want to go to a hospital. They may know that they're gonna get turned away or they're gonna get inadequate medical care. Um, their understanding and level of acceptance of their diagnosis may fluctuate. Their, their belief of what constitutes appropriate medical care may fluctuate. And then unfortunately they may refuse or be unable to adhere to care suggestions. I think we've all, we've all experienced patients that have had these really severe difficulties interfacing with the medical system. And it's gonna make their care if they develop a severe medical illness or they're nearing the end of their life, even that much more difficult. So what are some good responses to these challenges? Um, first and foremost, good medical care. And we could spend several hours probably talking about what good medical care for these patients looks like. Um, but hopefully you know it when you see it, you're able to find uh, you know, physicians and hospitals that will provide high quality medical care to your patients. Um, a relationship that protects the patient's integrity, making sure that we're treating these people as people. Um, you know, even if we're, if we're feeling that burnout, um, we're feeling that care fatigue, trying to seek the support that allows us to, to make sure that we're protecting these patients' integrity at all times. 
not abandoning them, not abandoning them, uh, and then taking advantage of periods of symptom improvement or more stability um, in their housing situation to complete things like advanced directives. We'll, we'll talk about what these are specifically in a little bit to discuss plans of care and to carry out medical appointments, things like physical exams and tests that need to be done. Being alert to the signs of physical illness, so kind of understanding when these patients may need more specialized medical care, trying to anticipate needs of what these people might need to be as comfortable as possible wherever they're staying or whatever their difficulties are, um, giving serious attention to complaints despite difficult behavior. I'm certainly as guilty as anyone else of having patients that have had really difficult behaviors, um, you know, either if they're stably housed or not, that really, you know, prevent us at times from giving the attention that they deserve to their complaints. Um, so I think that trying to be as, as uh, attentive as possible to their concerns. And I think that really the people within the, the, the FSP and the outreach team type of setting are really well equipped to this, uh, really well equipped to do this because they develop these longer term relationships with these patients. They understand kind of how to judo around some of their more difficult behaviors, whereas our colleagues in the hospital system may not have the, have the time or the expertise or the patience to do these things. Um, making sure that we're treating pain, we'll talk a little bit about that. Making sure that we're advocating for the patient, you all I'm sure do that on a day-to-day -day basis. Continuing established medication regimens if they're successful, making sure that we don't exacerbate symptoms of mental illness by stopping these medications out of course um, if patients are starting to decline medically. So why is this important? I mean, we've, we've hit on this a lot about how this can help improve care for patients. Um, how this can improve our uh, you know, ability to provide care and our, our kind of well-being overall. And I think if you look at studies that have elicited concerns about, about death and dying um, and about the end of life from patients experiencing severe mental illness or homelessness, they share a lot of the concerns that we would if we were faced suddenly faced with a severe physical illness or a terminal illness. They fear physical pain. They want to reconnect with people in their life, be that friends, family, um, even pets, um, you know, previous acquaintances, re reconnecting with places they lived before. Um, you know, they're worried about the financial and emotional burden on people that are close to them. They're concerned about what's going to happen to them once they pass away. Um, they're going to be concerned about what's going to happen with their remains, with their belongings, with, say, their pets. Um, they fear dying alone. So you, you can imagine um, experiencing homelessness and a terminal, terminal illness, being fearful of what's going to happen if you were to pass away while not stably housed. And they hope that they'll be able to have some level of self-determination. Um, you know, these people are, are kind of blown around on the winds of society so often. They, you know, they hope that they could be able to have some self-determination in what happens at the end of life. A lot of patients that are, have a severe mental illness and are experiencing homelessness are just as interested as we would be in obtaining a healthcare proxy. We'll talk with about what this looks like um, and participating in advanced care planning. This is a really important part of high quality palliative care. It allows patients to have autonomy and dignity and directly communicating their preferences about treatment in the end stages of a terminal illness. Um, if you think about some of the patients that you've seen, oftentimes they are, you know, potentially by virtue of their own illnesses, um, you know, exposed to a more paternalistic side of the medical and the kind of social system in this country. Um, and I think that a lot of the times that will tamp down their feeling of autonomy their feelings of dignity, their feeling of self-determination. And this might be an important, important time for an intervention and allowing them to take a little bit of that back. So what are goals of care and advanced care planning? I think that it, you know if we take away anything from this talk, 
this is probably one of the more uh, kind of high value things, certainly for the, the type of care that you all are providing. Um, you know, advanced care planning, planning for the future, essentially making sure that your goals of care, what you would like to have done if you do develop a serious illness um, is known. This is very proactive. It should start as soon as the diagnosis is made. Saying that cancer diagnosis is severe heart, lung, kidney, um, you know, any type of severe, potentially life-threatening or life-limiting illness. This should be started early when the person can still be actively involved um, and then their preferences, values, needs, and beliefs can be uh, determined and elicited and even documented. We'll talk about that as well. In the early stages of the illness, these people need support planning for the future. As the illness gets worse and worse, when things, when, you know, when death starts to approach, the patient's best interest may be served by a primary goal of maximization of comfort. That's when we think about things like comfort care. Um, this is a process. This is a fluid process. Once you, you set down some goals or, or kind of have an advanced care plan in place, it's fluid. It's not necessarily concrete. It should be revisited um, with patients and their supports on a regular basis, certainly following any change, significant change in health condition. And then these plans should be documented and stored in a way that permits access for everyone that's taking care of these patients um, at any stage in their illness and through transfers. Excuse me. I'm sure people have seen a post form uh, in the state of California. This is a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. Unfortunately, it can only be filled out by a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a PA. Hopefully, your the you know the, the teams that you're working with has some access to medical you know, physician and PA or PA professionals um, who can help complete this with, with patients. And it really is broken down into a couple of different sections. The first being cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR. Um, and that essentially is if a person is found without a pulse and they're not breathing, um, do they want resuscitation or do they want a natural death to ensue? Essentially, if a person is found lifeless, do they want to be taken to a hospital? Do they want the, the, the full medical treatment to be, to be taken um, at that time? Or do they want to be allowed to pass away naturally? The next section is what medical interventions might they want? If they're found you know, in medical distress, but they have a pulse or they're breathing, do they want full treatment? Which entails essentially the, the primary goal of prolonging life by all medically effective means. Um, that is things like intubation, advanced airway interventions. And essentially that means what's called BiPAP. And it's a mask that fits around a person's face and blows air into their lungs, not necessarily through intubation, but through a mask. Um, it's not incredibly comfortable as you can imagine. Um, also things like invasive uh, cardiology procedures. Um, you know, this is the full trial of full treatment. Selective treatment, um, things that focus on comfort, um, you know, IV antibiotics, IV fluids to make sure that people are comfortable. They don't want to be intubated. Um, they may use positive pressure intubation, that thing I said, like BiPAP, um, to, to facilitate comfort, but they don't want intensive care. Um, and then also can be able to elucidate if this person wants to be transported to a hospital only if comfort care needs cannot be met where they are now. And then the last part of medical interventions is comfort-focused treatment only. This person is found, you know, in, in significant distress, um, and they are, you know, found but they're alive. Do we really only want to use comfort-focused treatment? So relieving pain and suffering really by any any means necessary, um, but not using treatments that would prolong their life um, more so than just providing comfort for them. 
And then similarly, this can be uh, further delineated if they would want transfer to a hospital only if their comfort needs cannot be met. The last section that has to do with choices is really artificially administered nutrition. Um, things like long-term artificial nutrition, things like tube feeding tubes. I think a question just popped up, let me see. Can they complete a healthcare advanced directive durable power of attorney? So you can't complete, at least per my understanding, is you have to have a physician sign the post form, but I believe that you can, um, you can complete a durable powder of attorney for healthcare um, on your own. I don't think that necessarily needs to be done by a physician. I think that can be done by a patient um, and their, their care providers otherwise. I have a patient always starting therapy sessions with soon. He has a heart condition. Would I begin this conversation with him about advanced planning to speak with his doctor about this? I think, you know, I wouldn't necessarily make this, I think the right answer is, is if, it, if it's brought up organically, um, you know, you could even introduce it in the fact that he has, a, it sounds like a heart condition, I'm not sure what the specifics of that are, but with the notion of, really, it's, it could be as simple as a question. Have you thought about what you would want done if, you, uh, if your medical condition were to worsen? Have you had any thoughts about this? Have you spoken with anyone about this? And that might be a good opportunity to have him mention that to his physician or his doctor, whoever he sees for his medical care. Um, also talking to the family, um, if there's any family or social supports, that can be really helpful to make sure that they're aware of what their wishes are, um, you know, with regards to um, advanced care planning, you know, and things like the, the pulse form um, that could be, they could be broached with his physician. Okay. Those are really good questions. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And then under, under artificially administered nutrition, uh, a trial period of artificial nutrition, things like tube feeds, and then no artificial nutrition by any means. Um, something you have to discuss, you have to kind of uh, indicate is that this has been discussed with the patient, if they have capacity to make medical decisions for themselves, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Certainly in this population, that's a, that's a, a hurdle, um, or if they have a legally recognized decision maker. Um, and then there's some uh, kind of boilerplate legal stuff as far as if it's available, where it's stored, we'll talk about some of that as well. And again, you know, I kind of alluded to a little bit, it can be difficult for these patients to keep track of their post form. Something that we used in our FSP program um, was that we would give people a wallet size laminated card that reminds them where this is maintained. This can also be helpful for healthcare providers if they're brought into a hospital. Um, they don't know where, you know, if they have a, a pulse or, or a durable power of attorney for healthcare, um, where this might be maintained. That might be in the FSP office, that might be, you know, with the specific provider and who their predetermined surrogate decision maker is. So, you know, as you can kind of imagine, um, for some of these patients, decisional capacity and the ability to provide informed consent can be disrupted. Um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions, I think, on, on everyone's part that patients with severe and persistent mental illness lack decisional capacity, and this often leads the, to excluding them from discussions. Um, research, you know, the, the articles kind of cited on this slide do show otherwise, that patients often do have basic decisional capacity um, to at least uh, have their beliefs and, and, and desires uh, elicited by healthcare providers, but it requires patients and someone with some expertise, which I think where that would uniquely position um, you know, FSP and outreach providers to be able to help facilitate these discussions, potentially with a patient's doctor directly. Um, and you know, you're, you're able to use this relationship, which is really the most powerful tool we have in taking care of these patients 
to help them have these conversations with the healthcare providers, to teach healthcare providers um, that these patients can and want to have these conversations, but they may have some difficulties in, in doing this and helping to facilitate that. Um, you know, there, there may be a lack of continuity um, with healthcare providers. Again, this is where I think that people who are able to provide longer term therapeutic or, or treatment relationships with these patients can really help facilitate advanced care planning and facilitate this bridging of, of care to more acute care settings. Um, again, the, the lack of experience, we've touched on this a little bit. Um, there may be a lack of experience, either objective or perceived um, with end of life and serious illness care that may prevent medical health care practitioners or mental health care practitioners from broaching the topic of advanced care planning, just kind of how to do it. Um, and then there's the question of do patients with severe mental illness understand terminal illness? Um, some of them may have difficulty understanding the nature of a terminal illness. They sometimes refute the need for treatment despite the discussion of risks and consequences. And this is really where coordination of care is vital. I, I remember having a patient in FSP who had a, a fairly clear diagnosis of breast cancer, but due to her um, fairly severe psychotic illness, she was refusing that she has breast cancer. Um, and it was continuing to get worse and worse and worse um, to the point of where she was refusing any treatment, any evaluation. And it was really through you know, a, quite a long process that, that certainly endangers her health in general, because if you can think that time is of the essence, we were finally able to help coordinate her care to get her seen by a physician that she was somewhat trusting of. Um, I left that FSP before having closure on that, that, that patient, um, but I think that that helps to um, illustrate how difficult this can be. And, and I think that that's where giving yourself a bit of a break as well is there's no perfect way to do this. Um, you know, for some of these people, this may be an impossible task um, and just trying to be as, as, as uh, you know, as much of an advocate for these patients and their medical care and their own autonomy as we can be. So thinking of things like surrogate decision makers, other barriers to care, um, they may not have social support, they may not have the capacity to make a medical decision, and that's when a surrogate decision maker needs to be identified. This can be a partner, a family, even a close friend. Um, there's various avenues to document care preferences. We've already talked about the POLST form. We brought up briefly the Durable Power of Attorney for Healthcare, which gives someone the legal power to um, make healthcare decisions for that person. And it's my understanding that can be um, done without the presence of a physician um, fairly easily. If there are no surrogates available, and there's a severe and or there's a severe illness that's interfering with their care. That's whenever you think of other kind of legal avenues to help provide health care for these patients, things like an LPS conservatorship with medical powers. Um, this, I've, I've had to go down this avenue several times. Um, a probate conservatorship. Uh, I've had to do this as a geriatric psychiatrist as well. There's something in the state of California called a petition 3200, which is essentially a petition to the court uh, system for emergency medical treatment. Uh, there's there's quite a few um, stipulations with this. The you know a physician has to complete this petition, my understanding, um, and it's generally done in conjunction with a hospital counsel or a hospital attorney. Um, but if patients are having severe medical illness um, and their their mental illness or their social kind of situation is preventing them from attending to it, this can be pursued. Um, I've had a case at UCLA of a, a of a, a patient who had fairly advanced cancer that was actually treatable. The oncology team said that this person would have a chance of being essentially cured even with the advanced cancer, but 
directly related to their mental illness. They didn't feel like they actually felt like this would be a, a bad decision to treat this, this cancer. And we had to go through this petition 3200 process with the court to facilitate emergency surgery, actually to remove this, this tumor. That was successful. And I think, uh, um, he, you know, this person didn't have a surrogate decision maker. They certainly didn't have the capacity to make medical decisions about their care. And it was a fairly emergent setting. And this was in time when we went down the, the pathway of the petition 3200. So thinking about goals of care, um, surrogate decision makers, I think that as you know, mental health care providers, this is one of the avenues where we can really help facilitate the access to palliative care and kind of utilization of palliative care principles for these patients. We'll go through a couple of other avenues as well and kind of talk about when to refer, how to refer um, as well. But I really want to kind of hammer home the point in thinking about utilizing and, and um, taking advantage of the relationship that we develop with these patients to help them understand what's happening, to help them understand what their options are, and to help them understand how to have the most autonomy um, going through these decisions and making these decisions for their own medical care. So other interventions that we can engage in, psychosocial interventions. Uh, you know, certainly as FSP providers, we're seeing patients, you know, and outreach providers seeing patients that may not have a stable shelter. Um, you know, so assessing their shelter situation, is safety a concern? When they're getting medical treatment, is there anyone that they can stay with? Is there any respite care that they could utilize? Um, do they have, you know, do they have food? Uh, maybe we could refer them to assistance programs as necessary. Are they able to communicate? Um, you know, thinking that a lot of times now medical providers communicate with patients over cell phones. You know, do they have a cell phone? Are they able to keep a cell phone? Uh, while keeping in mind health literacy, what people understand, uh, making sure that they can understand written instructions. If these people are um, non-English speaking, if they're Spanish or a different language uh, monolingual, or if they have limited uh, English fluency, making sure that they're getting medical directions in their, in their language, uh, uh, their native tongue, um, their language of choice. Are these people able to get back in, you know, to and from medical care? Do they need help with payment of medical bills? And I think, again, this isn't, you know, we don't think of this palliative care per se, but really these are all the things that I, that as mental health care providers, we're well equipped to help facilitate for patients and can really help them interface with high quality palliative care much easier if they're able to have some of these psychosocial interventions to have their basic care needs met. Some more kind of uh, detailed psychosocial interventions, things like music therapy. Um, this has been shown to, you know, provide comfort, decrease agitation, um, you know, selecting music suited to patients' taste, spiritual beliefs, um, this can even be done on if they have a, a government provided uh, or subsidized smartphone. Um, you know, we're, we're all probably more suited to using music apps um, than our patients, but we might be able to help them load comforting music on these phones and show them how to use it. Exploring their spirituality. And this is certainly important at the end of life. And I think that one thing is that we often think of patients with severe mental illness. They may have spiritual beliefs that uh, you know, come outside the bound of what would be called normal spirituality. But even discussing those um, may bring comfort to these patients and uh, kind of authenticate their experience, um, certainly as they're dealing with a, a very stressful, um, you know, potentially terminal illness. Mindfulness-based psychotherapy, um, you know, there are apps, there are many app-based options, um, things like Calm, Headspace, Breathe. Again, these might be able to be loaded on a government uh, or, or kind of subsidized smartphone. I've done this with some of my patients in FSP programs where we, we set together in our appointment and load these uh, apps together um, and kind of go through what, what using them might look like. And a little may go a long way. 
Um, things like dignity therapy, we'll talk a little bit about kind of thinking about what is important to patients and what they hope to leave behind, even if they've had a very difficult life. And then thinking about grief and bereavement support for friends of these patients who they may feel that they're leaving behind for their family members um, and in, important for healthcare providers as well. I know that if you've worked with these patients for years and years um, or even shorter periods of time, you develop a, a close relationship with them. And if they are to pass away, um, it's important to keep the, you know, your own grief in mind. So thinking of the dignity therapy, dignity and legacy, um, this is becoming more uh, uh, readily utilized in palliative care settings. Um, I worked in a cancer, a, a kind of a, a psycho-oncology clinic at UCLA, and we did this with all of our patients, which I thought was really powerful. Um, there's a questionnaire, um, which you can just look up on your own online, This the source Martinez um, and, uh, and palliative medicine in 2017 outlines this, outlines this directly. And it really is, it's nine questions that you can actually keep track of and provide a dignity record or kind of a legacy record to these patients, something they can reminisce with, um, something they can keep with them, something they can share with family and friends. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it gives you a much deeper understanding and even appreciation of uh, who these people are, what's important to them. We'll just briefly go through the, the questions. You know, it's, it's tell me a little bit about your life history, what parts you remember are most important, when did you feel most alive? Um, are there specific things you would want your family to know, particular things you would want them to remember? What are the important roles that you play in your life? And this can vary um, for various people. This can be family roles, your job, what you did in the community, et cetera. Um, you know, why was this important to this person? What did they accomplish? Um, you know, what are their most important accomplishments? What do they feel most proud of? Are there things that they feel still need to be said or things they would want to say again? And I think what's important here is this doesn't necessarily have to be said to a family member. This may even be a deceased or completely estranged family member, but it's helpful to facilitate that autonomy and that, 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 that process of dignity and legacy and making sure that these patients have a, have a legacy and have a record for what they were, what they were proud of, what they would hope to say. You know, what would they want for their loved ones? Um, what have they learned in their life? What do they want to pass along? Do they have words of advice or wisdom? Um, you know, are there any instructions that they would want to leave to family or friends? Um, and then giving them the sense of, is there anything else they would want to include? Shifting gears a little bit from more psychosocial interventions, thinking about um, pharmacological interventions. We won't talk about this a lot, um, but really what I would say is that if you have a patient with a mental illness, um, some type of substance use disorder, really working with a psychiatrist if you have access to one and making sure that these patients' medications are continued um, or restarted if they've had a positive medication in the past. You're really trying to make control of their mental illness as good as possible. Um, you know, close monitoring is required for these people, especially if they're getting medications for um, psychiatric illness, also pain symptoms, other types of symptoms, different types of uh, terminal illness or serious illness treatments. Something that can even be used as a, uh, you know, uh, a tool for even non-medically trained people is that's called the Micromedex Interaction Checker. It's a tool online where you can enter people's medications to see if there's any major interactions. Um, and that can be something where you can even advocate for patients to their physician. I'm as guilty of it as there's any other physicians in the audience of not always checking the interactions for my patients um, and things that we might overlook might be leading to a lower quality of life for these people. So again, always thinking of avenues to advocate for these patients. Thinking of collaborating amongst healthcare teams, um, you know, 
FSP and outreach teams have a certain level of familiarity and connection with these patients. They can help minimize, you know, the, the discomfort of going into the hospital for these people, um, allow them to express their concerns and anxieties to trusted people. We've already hit on this a little bit. You know, these teams may be uniquely suited to help these patients um, navigate through all of the difficulties in, in going through a severe terminal medical illness um, through this routine contact. And what I found was interesting is that this has not really been looked at at all in a scientific or scholarly way. Um, I think it's, you know, these, you know, our teams are, are really well suited to do this, but no one has really looked at this in a, in a kind of a scholarly way. You know, in, intuitively, you would imagine that this probably improves quality of care, just having access to a, a, a kind of a high level of service team like this, um, but no one's looked at it. So thinking of the setting of care, um, you know, as we've touched on, providing holistic person-centered care for everyone is very important. And there has been some studies that have looked at that hospice or palliative care can be facilitated in any type of setting. So, you know, any type of setting that someone considers their home, a group home, assisted living, a shelter, a long-term care facility. So not trying to think of setting necessarily as a barrier. Oftentimes hospital settings can, uh, that include mental health professionals and palliative care professionals can be really beneficial for patients in working collaboratively to kind of make sure that their symptoms are under control until they're able to be admitted to a more stable uh, housing situation or a hospice. Um, you know, really it's, it's about meeting the needs of the patient, kind of meeting them where they're at. Pain management can be difficult. Um, there's, you know, high rates of comorbid substance abuse amongst the homeless, you know, people experiencing homelessness as well as people with severe mental illness. Um, there's a lot of bias and reticence on the part of providers to prescribe adequate amounts of, uh, you know, analgesics, things like opiates, um, you know, due to bias about these types of patients or fear of jeopardizing sobriety. Even be the best intentions sometimes go awry. Um, these patients may be reluctant to disclose substance use. And what I would say and, and kind of what, you know, professionals in this field feel is reasonable is that substance use in and of itself shouldn't be viewed as an absolute contraindication. You know, it, should, it shouldn't always be a no to the use of opiates, especially if people have advanced or terminal illness. And the idea that complete substance uh, use remission may not be feasible, but it should be explored. You know, if a sobriety is a goal, even if patients are experiencing severe medical illness, this should be explored um, throughout your discussions with these people. Pain management is built on trust. Um, we have to accept uh, the patient's report of pain. This is another place where we can really advocate for patients using our knowledge of them. Um, you know, if a, if a, you know, a, a homeless person with severe schizophrenia walks into emergency room complaining of pain, nine times out of 10, the, the emergency room doctors are not going to take this as seriously as they would someone else. It's, you know, unfortunately a, a biased fact. Um, but if you have a good relationship with this patient, you know that this is not something that they report on all the time. You may be able to advocate very well for these patients, especially in acute care settings like emergency rooms or hospitals that aren't familiar with these patients. But in the outside, the outpatient setting, you're setting clear guidelines and expectations for these patients. You develop them collaboratively, what's reasonable for them, what's expected from the, the care team. You're checking for patterns of misuse. If you're concerned about this, you could prescribe limited amounts of medications. Um, you know, certainly keeping track of the, the data monitoring on when these prescriptions are being filled. Certainly, if, you know, prescribing naloxone, that's actually a state law in California now, so the providers have to do this, but making sure that it's being done. And then if patients are worried about their medications being stolen, providing a locked medication storage box for them to keep with them.
symptom management. Uh, just kind of, you know, relatively briefly going over this more applicable to the types of patients that we might be seeing. If patients are having severe constipation from things like opiates, or if they're having constipation from their illness in and of itself, and they're prescribed something like a laxative, do they have adequate access to a bathroom facility, right? This sounds so simple, but for someone who doesn't have stable housing or is living in on the street, essentially, um, you know, if they're going to be using a laxative, they need to have routine access to a bathroom. And, you know, that might be a place where um, uh, an, an FSP or outreach type intervention is palliative care in and of itself. It's making sure their quality of life is attended to. If patients are fatigued as a result of their illness or the medications or the treatments they're getting, um, you know, we might be able to advocate for them to stay in shelters um, when they otherwise would have to vacate. You know, doctors prescribe durable medical equipment to enhance their mobility, to improve their functionality. Um, you know, walking around on crutches is really hard. Uh, I, I had to do it relatively recently for a broken ankle and it's, it's very difficult. I can imagine if you have a lot of belongings, um, you know, you're trying to keep them with you, crutches are not gonna allow you to do that. So, you know, trying to advocate for these people to have a wheelchair or a walker might improve their quality of life substantially. If they have a complex wound, if they have an ostomy, um, if they, which essentially is a bag on the outside of a body that collects urine and feces, if they are not able to do that naturally any longer, um, or if they have catheters that need to be changed, are they able to get adequate access to supplies? Are they able to go and pick these things up from the store? Um, there may need to be pretty intensive coordination of care to prevent complications from these, these types of interventions. Um, if people are prescribed oxygen therapy, if they have severe COPD, um, if they have you know, shortness of breath, dyspnea um, from their illness, they may need oxygen therapy, but they may not be able to go pick it up or get it set up. Um, they may not be able to have an oxygenator where they are um, is something that refills their oxygen tank in and up, you know, on its own. Um, if they don't have a stable residence, this makes this really challenging. But again, trying to think creatively in ways that you'd be able to get these patients' quality of life improved by getting them their oxygen, and certainly reminding them not to smoke around or have other people smoke around their oxygen supplies. So something to keep in mind is when to refer. And we've talked a lot about, you know, what these conditions that we see might look like, how they might present. Uh, you know, in the severe, life-threatening, life-limiting illness situation, um, you know, what are some interventions that we can do? But if you need to refer someone to palliative care specifically, how would you do this? Um, the best way that I've even seen is what's called the surprise questionnaire. And it's really just asking yourself, would you be surprised if this patient died within the next X amount of months? So it takes six months, 12 months, 24 months. Um, and this could be even integrated into an annual or half annual assessment package you know, assessing other things um, that is done out of a matter of course in the programs, this could be, you know, integrated pretty easily. And if you would say yes to this or no to this question, you know, would my patient X, would I be surprised if he passed away within the next 12 months? And the answer was no, then that might kind of key you up, start thinking in this more palliative fashion, you know, referring for palliative care specifically, or start working with these patients on goals of care, introducing the idea of advanced care directives, um, making sure that their symptoms are being adequately controlled, start letting the team know that this might be something that we need to think about. Really, this just goes along with um, kind of the idea of clinical gestalt. Really, do you think they need it is the core of this. Do they have multiple medical illnesses? Do they have a potentially life-threatening or life-limiting illness? Like one of the um, questions was just, my patient has a cardiac disease. Um, you know, that could potentially be a life-limiting, life-threatening illness. So is this something where I need to think about this a little bit more? Yes, in general. 
It may not set off a full referral for specialty palliative care, but I think that the trying to shift our mindset and thinking more about this um, is, is an important way to, to introduce this more into our practices. So how to refer, um, it's difficult, especially for this type of patient population. You know, local hospitals often have palliative care providers, palliative care teams and hospice teams. Primary care doctors can often facilitate these referrals as part of their practice. One good website that I found was getpalliativecare.org. It's really helpful to explain what palliative care is for patients. They can look at this. Um, it also will, there, it also has a compendium and kind of a list of palliative care organizations and providers in the area, which is kind of cool to look at. And then something that, uh, not necessarily a referral source directly, but I thought a good resource is homelesspalliativecare.com. It's kind of a learning resource and talks about, you know, a lot of what I've talked about in even more extensive fashion of how to utilize some of these interventions for patients experiencing homelessness. So where might this go in the future? I mean, it's honestly exciting. I think that uh, American medicine is thinking more and more about uh, palliative care services, kind of thinking in a more palliative care fashion. I know that as I've gotten more and more interested in this, I've been referring more of my, a lot of my practices dementia care, I'm referring more and more of my patients with dementia for palliative care consultations. Um, and it's been really helpful, I think, in making sure that they are able to get all of their needs met. Um, I just referred a patient last week for palliative care consultation as his uh, quality of life was declining pretty, pretty precipitously with advanced dementia. He saw palliative care the next day. This is through the VA system, so it's a little bit easier to, to facilitate and was actually referred to hospice. Um, they felt that he was at that point in his life uh, that was um, you know, feasible. Uh, to, to kind of make that referral. And I think that it was good for the family to understand that and have that extra level of support uh, at home that, that that provides. So what are, what are other future directions above and beyond just more uh, understanding and acceptance of palliative care services as a, as a type of medical care as well as a philosophy of care? Um, this is really embedding these services in non-traditional care settings, things like supportive housing, um, medical respite programs, um, and then programs for those with limited or no social support, like FSP outreach and field teams. Um, leveraging housing services to improve access to home-based care. Certainly things like Project Room Key, um, you know, uh, uh, Section 8 housing services become more uh, available, especially in Los Angeles County, even with all of their, some of their drawbacks, um, you know, trying to use this stable housing environment to facilitate this type of care. Um, some places have mobile palliative care teams, Hospice is usually uh, field capable. And then even things like shelter and respite-based hospice services. Something that you might be able to look up on your own time that's kind of innovative and unique is the Diane Morris Hospice in Ottawa. It's essentially a shelter-based hospice. Um, it's drop-in, 24-hour level of care, a physician's on duty 24-7, um, and are able to make sure that people who are experiencing homelessness are able to get a very high quality of hospice and palliative care services on a drop-in fashion, essentially. I really appreciate having the opportunity to come talk. Um, thank you so much for the invitation, and hopefully this is um, helpful for everyone uh, in, you know, in attendance.